I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. <coughs> So thanks, as always, David. Wonderful to be here. Wonderful to welcome you to the bookshop, of course, for another one in their great series of events that run throughout the year, of course, with films downstairs and the new LRB screen, as some of you will know tonight. Many thanks, of course, to Charlie, to Gail, Natalia, and David, as I said. John Clegg, some of you might know, was here earlier, um, always with a bag pack now, because um, he's imminently expecting his first child. So he is really someone who truly can say, in light of the recent elections, that now is the time for labour. Um, and uh, that is potentially where he is right now. Um, keeping things topical, of course, in the, in the setup. But that's not to say that this book isn't topical. It remains perennially topical. And we're delighted to present to you a wonderful panel, but arguably the finest panel that could ever be assembled in English on this book <laughs> for various reasons that will soon become apparent. I'm always aware when we do the events here that one looks straight ahead, of course, the, sort of the straight and narrow way is, is fine and so on. But in, particularly tonight, I'm going to make a big effort to look left suitably to um, really welcome in the left wing of the audience tonight, um, given the themes and obviously the writer uh, that we're discussing. So um, welcome to you, particularly there on the left. Thank you very much for coming. All of you, um, you'll have been given, of course, a gift as you, as you came in or as you sat down. Um, it's a shop that always keeps on giving, and you will have received this very valuable piece of paper. I hope most of you, some of you just coming in at the back, I do pick it up, of course. Um, this piece of A4, um, if you wanted to trade it in for the book that it describes, you'd have to um, probably put a starting price on the table of about £5,500. Um, so this, this piece of paper is obviously slightly cheaper, but will not appreciate in value in the same way as the book um, it suggests and uh, encourages you to view. This is the uh, download link to the PDF version of Oliver Channerin's and Adam Broomberg's War Primer 2, which I'll come to when I introduce Oliver shortly. Um, but do please um, track it down and check it out, because it is a wonderful project which is crucial to our evening's conversation. Um, so my panel, uh, delighted to introduce, um, uh, on the right uh, there, Tom Kuhn, Professor of uh, 20th Century German Literature at Oxford, a fellow of St. Hughes, um, the person you go to if you want to talk about Bertolt Brecht in the UK. He's, uh, part of, he's the driving force behind the... Uh, the major project to translate Brecht's poetry completely into English and also one of the world's leading experts on Brecht's drama. So I think you'll agree that he's pretty much entitled to be here on the panel tonight. Um, next to him, uh, as I just introduced, Oliver Channerin with Adam Bruberg, the duo Bruberg and Channerin, uh, multi-award winning international photographers. And suitably tonight, of course, 
because of their creation of War Primer 2, which we'll hear about shortly, for which they won the Deutsche Börse International Photography Prize in 2013. And next to Oliver, Esther Leslie, Professor of Political Aesthetics at Birkbeck, the author of numerous books, with a huge knowledge of 20th century German culture, one of the foremost specialists in the world, not just in English, on Walter Benjamin, um, and of course Benjamin Brett uh, in major conversation in all sorts of ways, which we will uh, no doubt come to. So major panel, as I said, major audience members as well. We're delighted that Nick, J- Nick Jacobs, the publisher of Libris, the first edition of War Primer, appeared with his publisher, uh, publishing house Libris in 1998. Delighted that Nick is here, and we'll go to him uh, a bit later on to hear about his experiences in relation to this crucial book, because publication of this volume and the challenges attached to it, particularly in post-war Germany, are very much part of the story. So, Tom, perhaps you could set the scene for us, um, given some of the things I've just said. This is a very distinctive book in Brecht's oeuvre, but it clearly speaks to uh, many other parts of, of his work, the drama and, obviously, earlier poetry as well. Um, could you give us a sense of how it came into being? Yeah, I can try and do that, feeling thoroughly intimidated now, of course. Um, <clears throat> I mean, perhaps I should say, first of all, what it is. Just, I, I guess most people know what we have here, but maybe you don't all, so that we start from the same place. This is a collection of press photographs, which Brecht made um, and very carefully selected. He had a huge um, archive of newspaper cuttings. I'm going to show you actually the German version, just to cheat a little bit, because he mounted them like this, or I should say with his close collaborator, Ruth Berlau, who should really be named right at the outset as one of the people who helped to conceive the look of this. He mounted them on black card like this, and then stuck underneath a little (coughs) typescript sheet of paper with a four-line verse on it. So it's a collection of photographs with those four-line verses at the bottom. Um, A unique collection, certainly in Brecht's output. Maybe we'll talk about other examples of that combination of poem and and image later on. Um, In it, he takes us through... um, the Second World War, a very idiosyncratic take on the Second World War, um, starting off largely with images of Hitler and the Nazi leadership, moving through Blitzkrieg, um, the Battle of Britain, the war in the Far East, um, the war in Africa, and homing in time and again on destroyed cities, and destroyed lives. He takes us through the reverse in the Soviet Union later on in the war. Um, he started putting together um, this collection, or he started, he, he called these photo epigrams. He gave them a new word. This was a new genre as far as he was concerned. And the first one of those dates from 1940. And he started assembling it as a collection in the years that followed, particularly in 1944. And he wanted to publish it straight away. (coughs) Um, We will perhaps come on to talk in more detail about the publishing history, but it wasn't in fact published in German until 1955. 
um, a year before his death, largely because of endless wrangles over censorship, censorship by the GDR authorities, for whom it was too pacifist and showed all sorts of other dubious tendencies that they didn't want to promote. Um, and then it wasn't published in English, as, as we've heard, until 1998. So it's a book that has pub- struggled to come before its public, despite its immense strength, I think, and interest for generations, um, as Gareth has said. So what else should I say about it? Um, well, perhaps one of the most intriguing things is Brett's interest in photography in the image and the idea of combining these two things. Um, Particularly in the English-speaking world, we tend to think of Brecht as a playwright. That's a very narrow vision of Brecht. He was also a very great poet with a huge oeuvre of poetry. Um, Some 1,500 pages of poems in the German edition. But he was also um, an innovator and an experimenter with what were, for his times, the new media of the age. Um, He, one could say he almost specialised in combining ancient and traditional forms and ideas with the modern. Um, Here we have a collection of epigrams which are modelled to a certain extent on the Greek. He had a, a German translation of Greek epigrams by Meliago when he was working on it. Um, they're written in a very elevated, difficult verse. Um, it's easy to, to misread these, to, to misread the whole project as a rather casual scrapbook. It's not that at all. It's much more carefully composed than that. Um, he uses regular iambic pentameters throughout and a rhyme and rhymes his little four-liners. So they're devilishly hard to translate. And we should also immediately acknowledge the amazing work of John Willett in rendering them in English at all. These are his translations that we have here. Um, and he uses complex and inverted syntaxes, um, lots of all and ach sorts of gestures. So there's a, um, an, a classicizing, archaizing um, register to the verse quite often. Um, it's often a little bit difficult to see what's going on or to whom he's referring. He uses um, epithets to refer to leaders. For example, Hirohito is re- called um, Desondes Himmels, the, the son of the heavens, alluding to his, his demi-divine status. But in the context of the poem, then, you're not immediately sure who he's referring to. There's quite a lot to tease out in the poems. And the relationship with the the images is also complex. Um, Of course, it's not brand new to put together a poem and a picture. Um, And people have, critics have tried to trace the form back or explain the form in terms of Baroque emblematics, for example, even. Um, but the images are very unlike those of a Baroque emblem where we would have a, um, a familiar symbol in some way, or at least in that cultural context familiar. The most familiar to us today would be, say, a death's head memento mori. 
with a little verse underneath. Brecht's images are very different from that. Um, there's nothing expected predictable about the collection or the succession of images. Again, sometimes people misread the collection and talk about it as a, a collection of the images of the horrors of war. But it really isn't. It's a much more idiosyncratic take than that. Um, Brecht's not interested in parading um, the horror of war in front of us. I think we know enough about that. He's much more interested in creating connections with other attitudes in society, with capitalism above all, with ideologies behind the activity of war. Um, and I think that's what the, um, the succession of images is designed to do. So there's a, it's a, one of those works which creates a lot of work for us as readers and, and viewers. Uh, and I think that's clear even if you just look at the, the succession of shapes on the page, which is interesting. Um, the, the photographs take up a, a very different... Sorry, this is... I quite like impossible visual aids. Um, but this is enough to illustrate my point. We have a very different relationship each time of photograph to text simply because of the shapes of the photographs. And that's one of the many things that I think stops you from settling into a single way of reading any of these things. You start instead to look for other connections between them. To um, You're reminded of different shapes as well as of different motifs in the poetry, different motifs in the images and things like that to create connections and cross-connections through, um, through the collection. Um, should I stop there? <laughs> no, that's great. There's, there's much, more to, much more to get onto, but thank you so much, Tom. That's a really great setup. Perhaps you could just read three or yeah, four, yeah, just to give to... us the flavour of, yeah. of the range. Um, yeah, no, that's a. Um, if you don't mind, that'd be great. Can I read one in German? Of course, to, yeah, absolutely. To start us off. I'll see if I can find the, the English of the same one. So um, <clears throat> here we have a, a picture, or four pictures, of <coughs> children. One with a bandage around his head, obviously all victims and in distress, little children. And in this case, underneath, there is very tiny, the original <coughs> caption from the newspaper from which it was taken. That's another thing which Brecht varies enormously. Sometimes we have some original text. Sometimes he very deliberately cuts it off. And underneath he writes, Ihr in den Tanks und Bombern großer Krieger, die ihr in Algier schwitzt, in Lappland friert, aus hundert Schlachten kommend als die Sieger, wir sind's, die ihr besiegt habt. Triumphiert. And the English of that is You in your tanks and bombers, mighty warriors, you that in Algiers sweat, in Lapland freeze, 
In scores of battles, you've been victorious. See whom you've conquered. Hail your victories. Here we have a a picture of Hitler enjoying a hearty stew with a nice petty bourgeois family. Um, This is obviously a politician's photograph. You see me here eating a simple stew. Me, slave to no desire, except for one. World conquest. That's all I want. From you, I have but one request. Give me your sons. And this is a very famous image for, for followers of Brecht, anyway. This one here, I don't know if you can see that because it's really quite faint. Um, it maybe I should no. It'll take me too long to find it in the other book. Um, it shows it, it. It has this time large bit of text across the top. Singapore lament, and it uh, shows something in the aftermath of the bombardment of Singapore. Um, in front of the wreckage of a um, cart, hand cart, a wagon of some variety, there is a woman crouching. <coughs> with her mouth open and down at the bottom right some way from her is the dead body of a child. It's famous for, for Brechtians because he also included it in his diary, in his journal um, and he also said that when Helena Weigel played Mother Courage, the silent scream that she emitted when she is confronted with the body of her own son in the play was a memory by Helena Weigel of this particular image. You'll notice as I read these as well that the perspective keeps changing. Brecht uses many voices. He uses the voices of the victims, he gives voice to the ruined cities, he gives voice to nations, to classes, um, and he speaks as the poet. O voice of sorrow from the double choir of gunmen and the victims of the gun, the son of heaven needed Singapore. And no one but yourself needed your son. And I'll do one more. This time we have an American soldier standing over the body of a dying Japanese soldier on the beach. And with their blood they were to colour red a shore that neither owned. I hear it said that they were forced to kill each other. True. 
My only question is, who forced them to? I think I'll, I'll stop there. But each of those, you can see, um, takes us on to far more than simply a caption beneath a picture, to a way of interpreting and understanding the war. It's a sort of analytic documentary rather than just a document. Thank you so much, Tom, and for giving us that range as well um, to, to, to share the kind of the position on. That's, that's tremendous. I mean, Esther, given this is a book of photographs and given that we're aware of Benjamin's essay, of course, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, we're aware of the emergence of mass media internationally over the course of Breck's life. Does this book sit in a, in a landscape, particularly in German literature and culture, but also internationally for you? Does it sit in a landscape where it kind of can find a home? Or is it really sui generis and outside of, outside of anything else? I mean, of course, there are other photo textbooks, but I think I suppose I'm quite convinced in a way by, by Tom's idea that there's a certain kind of particularity about this, not, not least but because of the tone and structuration of the poems, the fact that it's not photo montage, so the images haven't been cut into, but there's something about allowing them to, they sort of speak for themselves and then get derailed or encountered by these lamenting um, uh, voices beneath in some way. And I think that's quite an unusual structure. But of course, there were, there were other things like Tchaikovsky's uh, Germany above all, or um, all of that sort of photo work that was um, going on with, with Hartfield and mm. other photographers and book jacket designers and so on, who were, who were working with particularly... I mean, in this much earlier period of the 20s and 30s, with a very dynamic relationship between image and text. Mm. Should, should I read what I prepared earlier? Yeah, please, that's great. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to miss out on that. Yeah, no, forget my question. Fall away from the side of the No, please do. Yeah, fantastic. No, I, I, yeah. I just thought, so, so I could sort of, um, yeah, try my own lapidary, more lapidary statements. Of, great. Okay, so which also contextualizes things. So uh, around 1926, um, Brecht wrote some poems under the title Lesebuch für Städtebewohner. Um, again, it sort of uh, poses certain problems for translation, and maybe handbook for city dwellers or a reader for those who live in cities. And I thought I would cite one of these poems from that cycle. If you meet your parents in Hamburg or elsewhere, pass them like strangers, turn the corner, don't recognize them, pull the hat they gave you over your face and do not, oh, do not show your face. Now that cycle of poems speaks in a sinister language of erased traces or covering your tracks, of not answering doors, being anonymous, moving on, hopelessness, taking poison in order says Brecht, to stay alive. That's to say the poems attempt to find a new social morality to make life possible in an uncomfortable place, to make life tolerable or survivable. Nihilistic, cool, shell-shocked and disaffected, these 
physiognomies offered tips for surviving in cold, policed cities, and resourcefully they proposed new cultural forms made from the scraps, rubbish, and ugliness of what surrounds them. They're prophetic poems, too. Erase the traces, efface the traces, cover your tracks, rather than have someone else efface them. Living traceless lives is useful. It will become an essential mode for those who live through or survive through the years to come. The swift disappearances in the dead of night before the secret police arrive, the, the, the moving, leaving your home in moments in order to catch the last train out before the bombs fall, the line is pulled or diverted. So contingency crashes in. Now, I've mentioned that text. I was thinking about that text in relationship to these poems and images or photo epigrams, partly because it takes us towards Hitlerism, the other side of which or during which War Primer develops and then gazes back from. But I also wanted to mention it because in its title there is the word Leserbuch, which might be translated as handbook, manual, or perhaps best, reader, indicating in in those works a kind of pedagogic value in the text. So that book, those poems, are there to give you lessons in city life in these days. They will help you to learn how to modify your behavior, perhaps become cool and distanced in order to save yourself, if no one else. So a laser book, a reader that teaches War Primer, or Kriegsfibel, has a similar aspiration. Uh, Primer is a learning text, a text that teaches how to read or how to write or how to do simple mathematics. In the early 1930s, very early 1930s, Walter Benjamin wrote two reviews of three of Tom Seidman Freud's primers, um, two of which were called Spielfibel, or play primers. And they were writing, reading, and numeracy learning books for children. And Benjamin was enthusiastic about these, these learning texts, describing Sidman Freud's intent in this way. It's not oriented towards appropriation and mastery of a particular task. This style of learning only suits grown-ups. But rather, it takes account of the child for whom learning, as with everything else, naturally signifies a great adventure. He goes on to describe something of Sigmund Freud's method. Resting places, little huts to lodge in, have been provided everywhere. This means it's not necessary for the child to write on and on to the point of exhaustion. Rather, there an image awaits his signature. Here a story awaits the missing words. There again a cage waits for a bird to be sketched in. Or elsewhere a dog, a donkey and a cock await their woof bray and cock-a-doodle-doo. So I presented two models of primers then, those that teach how to survive in the unwelcoming asphalt city and those that teach to read, to write, to count through activating a person, stimulating them to thought and action rather than giving them finished results. So the primer as a tool for learning to read, I mean, I suppose I think in some ways Kriegsfeeble unites, War Primer unites these two kind of modes of, of what a primer might be. It tells us about the horrors that have been endured and must be endured. 
tells us what types of attitude to take towards those horrors. He tells us what kinds of questions might help us to survive beyond that. It is also a tool for learning to read. Learning to read the war in contemporary capitalist society of breast time through a certain self-activation. Learning to read the miserable outlines of a world in which war is either always happening or about to happen, a world that we might well recognize. It might be seen, or maybe not, as a kind of Baroque emblem book, um, uh, a mode which, like the primer, brings into proximity but not unity word and image, such that the reader is asked to decipher referencing words against image, the results that come out are multivocal, multidimensional. And it's in that very mode of address that the educational impulse resides. The primer is also originally some sort of prayer book, or at least possibly. The German word feeble may be derived from a corruption of the word Bibel or Bible. As early reading primers used excerpts from the Bible. How contradictory then should the word Krieg, war, and the word feeble, primer, sound next to each other, words that should pull in different directions, the military and mercy, except, of course, one thing Brecht can teach us is that they don't, they pull together. And the Christian crosses in this book mark graves, and grave after grave, even if one has a glove atop it that looks like a beseeching hand that would call upon the avenger in the sky, who should punish those who committed injustice but does not. We should learn to read the world through this book. It wants to teach us some lessons, but we must already be able to read in order to read this book. We must already be literate in the sense that Benjamin pointed out, citing Mohol Nodge, that the illiterate of the future would not be the person unable to read or write, but the person ignorant of how photography signifies. To read is to be able to read a photograph, and Brecht knew too that that thing that demanded to be read was also perfidious. His line, much quoted line from the Thripney trial of 1931, on what photographic naturalistic depiction can and cannot do, was amplified by Benjamin that same year in Benjamin's essay on photography. It's a much quoted line. For the situation is complicated by the fact that less than at any time does a simple reproduction of reality tell us anything about reality. A photograph of the Krupp's works or GEC yields almost nothing about these institutions. Reality proper has slipped into the functional. The rarefication of human relationships signaled by the factory can no longer be revealed by the photograph. So we do learn nothing from the reflective, glossy surface of a photograph. We cannot read it, or we can read only its blank reflection in a circuit of ignorance. For what is real has become a function of the economy, economy which hides away, has secret abodes and strategies of subterfuge. And what is real is the way in which humans have to treat each other as things, as in the factory, as in war. And this cannot be seen. This social process is not manifest visually or only difficultly so and what produces it and that's what interests me in Brecht's poems what's the power behind this what what is the the social force how does that become visible yet says Brecht the visual field is not conceded to the photograph and to the press and there 
affirmative use of images. He observes, something has actually to be constructed, something artificial, something set up. For this reason, art is indeed necessary. But the old concept of art, the one that rests on experience, is superseded. For whoever represents that which is experienceable in reality also fails to capture it. Reality is no longer experienceable in its totality. So he seems to argue there are perspectives, competing experiences, perhaps those who have and those who haven't, those whose experience is partial, fragmented, those who float above and those who are masters and those who are serfs. These perspectives, these parts need to be gathered up like Benjamin's shattered vessel, tikkun, a whole that needs to be refashioned, constructed, set up, brought into visibility in order to be read, in order for us to learn how to read this world. And so here the format of War Primer meets the demand to angle pictures with text, the caption, the essential component of the shot, as Benjamin put it in 1931, insisting then some three years later, too, in the author as producer, what we require of the photographer is the ability to give his picture the caption that wrenches it from modish commerce and gives it a revolutionary use value. But I think, as Tom says, these are are not just captions. These these move that, that, that text effect to somewhere else. All this is background, the debates on photography and photo montage and indeed pedagogy that were so lively and critical in the 1920s and 1930s. Fabrice Warprimer begins at the start of the next decade, 1940, and finishes afterwards, after war, after Hitler, after the firestorms and mass deaths. It looks back and forward. Its photos are in their time and out of it. In fact, it compresses time, letting the past speak, letting those who are gone speak from another time, into the time of the media photograph, into the time of Brecht's making of the war timer, the jumbled time of the non-chronological images, into the time of its review before German publishers, before committees of the GDR, into the time of its publication and its translation. Times compressed. Hitler before the microphone in 1940. It's the opening image here, giving the impetus to Brecht's desire to stick down this moment, to make a new image poetry out of the detritus of Life magazine or the Berliner Illustrator. A new image poetry that could make us see and read anew. This Hitler looks like a magician, a sorcerer, conjuring up the worst of all in an unholy alliance with technology. He looks as if he's about to open a show. The show on the next page needs metal needs a heaviness to pummel bodies, a heaviness made by other bodies. And this heaviness that is war will mark the bodies of those who thought they were far from it, not implicated in it, just bathing, just bathing in the oil of sunken ships. War builds. Ice is set on fire and then a storm of violence unending is unleashed. So much death and so many great men who are gangsters And so many perspectives from above, below, within, outside, in the center of, far away, peering through, blinded people too, those who see and those who do not see. In their totality, these fragments augmented by their poems, their cool, cynical texts at time, generate something akin to a complex, multi-relational experience, a complex seeing. These juxtapositions of text and image and image and image activate seeing. 
sometimes has said that image texts are cold, icy. From 1944, we see an image of a tent in Norwegian snow. What brought you two to North Cape, a command? Don't you feel cold? Chilled to the bone, are we? When will you two go home? When this snow ends. And how long will it snow? Eternally. We have to learn not only to read, to read words, to read a photograph, but also how to warm up which might mean how to resist or how to refuse the command to stay in the snow, and how to understand the power, the power in particular of collective mass action. We learn to read the world, but not just read. A poem in here and an image relating to drowning refugees, those who drown in view, in view of the shore, in view of others, speaks across times to tell us it's not enough to learn to read, to learn to see but also we have to act. So, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Esther. Tremendous as always. Please publish that and tell us where you are publishing it so we can um, enjoy it at, at greater depth and length. Thank you very much, um, indeed. And also for your closing comments, of course, which bring the book and its uh, relevance right up to date, which I think is where we'd like to turn to you now, Oliver, because... Of course, your uh, engagement with this book, um, which took you directly into contemporary images of conflict, um, is exactly about the, the, the ongoing relevance, of course, of Breck's work. So could you give us a sense of where you came, how, you came across, how you and Adam came across the book, and then, of course, what prompted the, the idea of, of a kind of a, a direct engagement with it? Yeah, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. Um, and... Um, uh, I think anybody, and this is testimony what I've heard today, anybody who has a copy of this book, um, The War Primer, um, cannot help feel that they have some kind of a special and very personal relationship to it. I think when you pick it up and you look at it, you see that, this is a bit loud, um, that it, it kind of demands you to look, um, and it almost invites you to write your own poetry, which is probably not advisable. But... Um, in fact, I did try that. Um, but I think it's, it's a book, it's a work in progress. In a way, it's a book that probably was never going to... It isn't over, and it's an invitation. I, I think of the war primer as an invitation to make your own war primer. And in, in fact, that's, that's, kind of, that's exactly what me and Adam did. Um, we, I don't remember how we found a copy of the book, in fact, but it was in our studio... And it was, uh, it was lying around for a long time. And we always knew we wanted to somehow make a response to it. Um, our, our work, and we, just to give you some context, um, I work in a partnership with Adam Brunberg, and we're photographers. So we're very um, curious about photography, this very odd mercurial medium that um, is so hard to pin down and so hard to really understand. And it's so kind of simple in a way. Um, on, on the on first reading, it's this, it, everything happens within the square. It's flat. We know how photographs are made, yet they're so curious and so, in fact, so hard to decipher. And um, there seems to be what I like to call a hidden promise, kind of, um, kind of woven into every photograph, um, that it, it 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 invites you in and it asks you as a viewer to look and to respond in some way and it's a bit of a trick especially when we're talking about images of human suffering such as many of the pictures that are in war, in the war primer 
um, you look at these pictures of suffering and you um, immediately ask yourself, well, what is the appropriate response to these images? And we ask ourselves that all the time when we open any newspaper. Um, is the correct response to have empathy? Um, or should we step back and try to sidestep that empathy and sort of try to uh, adopt a kind of criticality to the way we look at photographs? And I think what Brecht uh, discovered, and it was so prescient at the time, was that photographs are like hieroglyphics that need to be, they need to be decoded. They're, they are, in fact, coded, and they need to be somehow demystified. And the poem really functions in a pragmatic way to try to not just explain the picture, but also to complicate it, to make it a more complex entity. And, and it demands you to think more critically um, about, about the image and the production of images mm -hmm. and to recognize that images are a currency. Uh, they have a value. They're, they're distributed through the world through a system, um, a capitalist system, which is designed to accrue value to those images. And very often the people in the images actually are the ones that never benefit from that. And so these are some of the things that as a photographer you have to grapple with. You know, what does it mean to be a photographer, to be a witness, to observe something, um, and, and then to produce something like a photograph from that experience? Um, and so War Primer demands you to think about these things. Um, and what, what, we, what we did was quite juvenile, actually. We just decided, well, let's make the Hollywood sequel. You know, this is an unfinished work. Uh, what would War Primer 2 look like? Um, how would Hollywood do this? Um, and we began thinking about how we could remake. Um, what would Breck do? Would he? Well, we began by going in and looking at newspapers and cutting up newspapers ourselves with a pair of scissors. And as I said earlier, we tried even to write some poems, um, our own poems, and they were bloody awful, actually. And and then we remembered. Um, something that Brecht once said, which is don't start with the good old things with the bad new ones. And um, that kind of became our mantra. Um, we threw away the scissors and we stopped looking at old newspapers and we turned our attention to, to the web um, and it seems so obvious now. We started to look not at photographs actually but at video um, and began to um, extract stills from video um, and, and think about how these stills could connect with Brecht's original poems, and his words are so prescient that they, they immediate, there was an immediate connection. And I'm not saying that we did something as crude as type the poem into Google and then out came a video or something like that. We were, it was artfully done. But, um, but we tried to create connections between contemporary images of conflict and the poems, the, the epigram, the, poet, the poems in the photo epigram. So we created new, we uncoupled the uh, photo epigram and then we connected the words with a new photograph. And Brecht was concerned with the first, the Second World War, as we've already heard. Um, and our book is concerned with the war on terror and it begins with the um, attack on the World Trade Center in New York and it ends with the um, capture of Osama bin Laden. So those, that, those, those are the events that bookend our war primate too. Um, and, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite poems in the book is this one. 
A cloud of smoke told us that they were here. They were the sons of fire, not of the light. They came from where? They came out of the darkness. Where did they go? Into eternal night. And, and what we have here is a photograph of Liverpool, I think. The docks of Liverpool. And it's an, aeri- an aerial photograph um, taken from above from an aeroplane, a German aeroplane. And it's showing a bomb has clearly just been dropped. Um, and why this picture is so interesting to me is that this, is a, this was a very contemporary view of the world. Um, aerial photography had only been invented, I think, in the, Second world, in the First World War. And most people had never seen the world from this perspective. And why I think this picture is interesting, why has he put this picture here? Because I think he was very interested in the technology of image making. Um, and he was really amazed at this technology. Wow, we can see the world from above. What does this mean um, from a military, m- military point of view, but also from a poetic perspective? Um, and to this picture, to this, to this poem, we put the well-known photograph of the attack on um, the Twin Towers. So you see this, um, you know, you see this airplane driving into, flying into the, into the building and this cloud of smoke and this light. And it just connected immediately with the words. Um, and that started to make sense to us. Now, I think sometimes the words here function to describe what's going on in the picture. And sometimes they, they function to confuse what you're seeing a little bit. And so we tried to follow Brecht with that um, to create to keep the viewer on his toes or her toes, I suppose, something that you said, this book demands, it makes us work. It doesn't set up a, um, a rhythm and then stick with it. It keeps jumping around on the page and in the words and in the images so, and, in, the, um, and in, in terms of who it's addressing. So um, what else can I say? I think, I think that this book um, is an invitation to make other books like it. And when I see something like a photograph of a bomb being dropped on Afghanistan and Donald Trump saying, the mother of all bombs, I think of the war crime. I think of that relationship between a picture and a word um, that is so um, straightforward, actually, um, and so brilliant. And, and, and as, as I think you mentioned, it really is an attempt to teach us to, to look at photographs in a, in a different way. Thank you very, very much indeed, all, all three of you, because we have a, a huge range of ideas, responses, strategies to, to, uh, to uh, uh, share and to engage with now. I'm really aware of the time already. I mean, I was just carried away there. Out of time. Eight o'clock already. Normally, by this stage, we would be heading towards the uh, second or something. In some cases, in my case, the third drink of the evening. Um, but actually, we're, we're not there yet by any means. So um, hold that, um, that desire for beverage a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> I mean, just taking, Esther, your comment that um, word and image are operating in proximity but not unity, mm. and then Oliver's direct sort of um, engagement with that, uh, with that idea in terms of uh, going from the poem that came out of the image back into an image, keeping the trace of the previous but also finding the image, as Brecht himself did, but in this case from a very different source. We kind of end, end, find ourselves in a very um, richly complicated series of exchanges and dialogues that speak across decades, but also across the medium itself. And I just wonder for, 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 for you, what is the implication of, the, of that passing on through the image? 
through the poem as a kind of portal back into the image? And how does that, how does that speak to Breck's project? Well, I suppose it is this notion of a, of a complex seeing of a... I mean, one wouldn't want it all just to become a kind of mass of confusion, I suppose, and such a, a babble of different impulses that it, it, it could just become meaningless, perhaps. I don't know. Is that a danger there? But I, I do think... I mean, I, and I, I think there's a certain... You know, I mean, that's the sort of artistry, mm, I think, that mm. we've been that we've been talking about that 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 which is part partly i think very strict selection and then working on 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 the words to to be in control in a sense of 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 what's passing backwards and forwards mm. of those relays but while i think also acknowledging in the sense there could be contingency or you you, you can trigger a whole set of other relationships and questions and ironize what has been by displacing that in, into another time or, you know, getting it to, to speak across time. So I think the, the ironic the ironic stance, I think, is probably also mm. quite an important um, aspect to this too, which is another kind of distant, you know, the distance between the, the poet writing the poem and, 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 and articulating for others a kind of ventriloquy that's at work and this sort of plethora of different voices, different times, different spaces all um, work back on us putting us into that that questioning position I suppose I was thinking about you know learning a language and how you have books that try to teach you a language and you you, you, you always have to to work at it in you know and and, and that's part I think of this that, mm-hmm. that sort of working at it and with it and it can help you in certain ways in other ways you feel blocked and so on Thank you. Um, Oliver, I'd like to come back to you just in a minute about the kind of aspects that make up a, a complete work. But, Tom, can we just think about what Oliver said about the idea of the Hollywood sequel? Because it's, it's poignant, given Breck's time in Hollywood, and his time, obviously, making this book primarily in the US, isn't it, during the course of the war. He went through Scandinavia in the first part of exile, and then obviously across Russia to, to end up in, in California. But do we, should we think of the kind of the Americanization of his time as a, an informant to this? Uh, absolutely, we should. I mean, the, the images come from various sources. They come from um, Danish and Scandinavian and English newspapers, but they, above all, come from Life magazine. Mm. Um, and uh, Brecht, after all, lived through uh, a period in which uh, printing moved into Greytown, and, and so you could reproduce photographs in a completely different way from before, and the illustrated um, magazines that he knew started in his childhood, after all, with uh, line drawings and etchings, because these were the sorts of things that could be reproduced. Um, and, and then we move on to Life magazine. It's, it's, a, it's yeah, a huge yeah, transformation. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's not just the Hollywoodization, but it, it's, it's the attempt to take on board that new visual world, which is a big thing to take on, on board, I think. Uh, I mean, one of the other things that struck me, um, above all while Oliver was talking, is that the images are terribly powerful. Uh, in 1938, Brecht wrote a little dialogue between a painter and a poet. So before he started on this, um, envisaging a 
possible collaboration in which they would have paintings and poems. And the painter in this dialogue says, but the images will be far too strong. They'll swamp the poems. <laughs> and the poets are absolutely convinced that they won't. But I, I share the, the painter's worry because the images that Life magazine and now, yes, the internet give us of, I was going to say daily events, but perhaps I shouldn't call them daily events, but of, of you know, the Twin Towers or Grenfell Tower. These are hugely powerful visual images and you do need bloody good poems to stand up to them. And it's something that I worry about in even in um, the original German version of this and again in the translation. Some of these images are so strong that it's actually quite difficult for the poems to contend with them sufficiently. And maybe the poems have to be that complex. Mm. Um, uh, and, and that's assertive of something different mm. in order to do that. Otherwise, we'd only take away the pictures. The, the, I mean, there's another one that, that some of you will know. <coughs> if I can just, just show you the image. Is that the, the strongest mm. visual image in the book? Um, we have that... that Head of a soldier mounted on a on a tank. You could just take that away very easily, and it's hard for the poem to do anything. But Brecht's poem does something quite extraordinary because he starts off um, acknowledging it for its emblematic power. He, he invokes Hamlet and says, "This is a new Yorick." Alas, Yorick! It starts off. Um, and by the last line, he's only got four lines to do this in. By the last line, he is recalling that the parents of this dead soldier still owe money to the bank. Hmm. It's a huge distance to have travelled yeah. in, in so, four lines. And I think that's really important, you know, because he must, he's conscious of Ernst Friedrich's War Against yeah, yeah. War book, which, you know, was just a whole book of horrific images of, yeah. of First World War soldiers produced in four languages so that war should never happen again, and yeah. there it goes 13 years later. So in a sense, yeah, he knows that the, the power of the, the atrocious image in that sense, and then it's very deliberate to then yeah. produce this poem that is, is almost bathos. I mean, it's working with all sorts of kind of poetic tropes that just take, yeah, yeah fight back against that, that <laughs> yeah. power against the image. image yeah. Yeah. But I think maybe something else is going on, um, which is um, a kind of meditation on the production of icons, visual icons. Because when you have, you have a picture like 9-11, you have um, this plane going to a building. We all, everybody in this room has that image, as I said that, in their head. It's there. But actually, there were many, many pictures taken on that day, and millions of pictures. And um, But very, very quickly what happens through time is those other pictures disappear. And history kind of coagulates around one image. Kind of one image is chosen. And why is it that image and not one where the plane was like three seconds further out from the time? You know, what is it about the images that we select that become the historic images, um, that become the icons? And you spoke a little bit about the mode of, of the poetry being almost like a Greek, almost like a kind of tombstone, the language of a tombstone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a text that's intended to last forever, and I think, I can't remember who referred to them as kind of poor monuments. David Evans. David Evans, right. So 
th there's this idea that the poem is could almost be it's short enough and it's um, iconic enough that it could be carved in stone and it would still be comprehensible in a thousand years' time. And I think there is this kind of meditation on the idea of of history and and what we remember. Thank you very much. Just to stay with you, Oliver, before we go, I'd like to ask Nick from Libris in a minute just to t give us a little sense of the move into English for this book. Um, we're going to uh, we're going to have to skip over its complex arrival in German. Um, details are very well laid out at the back of the, this publication. But Oliver, you just described that idea of, of you know the kind of epigram lasting for centuries. The limits that um, both Esther and, and Tom have talked about. The limits of the project: an image and four lines. Um, the idea of the emblem book and so on. How important is that idea of limits to you in making your work, and particularly this work, given that you were cho choosing a certain block off in time, just as Brecht himself did. He stopped at the end of the Second World War, although many things continued that he could have engaged with. Do limits come in at the beginning of a project? Do they emerge? Do your frames of sort of containment come out of uh, the starting, or are they in place before? I think the frame, the limitation, the framework for it began with the object. The actual, the, the 1998 English translation right. by Libris, um, this object, which we had in our hands, um, that became the frame and the limit. So there were 85 plates. So that's how many images we required. Um, the book itself deals with the First World War, so we chose our you know, the war on terror, essentially. So the book suggested the limits to us, in a way. But that, as I said, I think it is, it is, um, it's a kind of project that could go on forever. Um, and in fact, as I understand it, Brecht intended the war primer to be a, an opera. Um, and he worked with, when he was in California, he intended to, he even worked, I think, with Hans Eisler, um, his close friend, um, to compose a series of um, librettos, um, and the intention was for this thing to be an opera, um, which which I've always one of the things I've always kind of dreamed about is finishing that opera. And I've had lots of conversations with um, composers about how to do it. How would you finish that 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 um, that uh, opera? It, it, uh, it does exist. Well, it, yeah. I don't I don't think it was. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think he ever intended it to be a, a full scale. Opera, but Eisler did start writing settings, yeah. um, and I think there are 16, 14, 14 um, of these that he set to music. Mm. Um, for, and yes, on a grand scale. I mean, in that sense, mm. operatic, there's chorus, um, baritone, and soprano, I, I, I think is the. Mm. So, but, you know, substantial forces. Um, they're tremendous pieces, and yes. It would be it, well. It, it would be wonderful, <laughs> from my point of view, both to see that a performance of that with the images as projections, but also absolutely mm. to continue it forwards. Because I think uh, I so totally agree with you that this is a a, a model of something that we should be doing. Mm. It's not just a historical um, object. And, and I've I've simply taken it into schools and suggested to school kids that they might have a go. There's, they have yes. fewer inhibitions and there's less riding on their success or failure, perhaps. And it's been a fantastic instrument, a pedagogic instrument. Like yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and to answer your question just very briefly, 
the idea of an artwork having an end point is something I find depressing. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I'm excited by works that feel unfinished and feel like they're an attempt at something. Mm-hmm. You know, but they, but they may not, they may not have got it right, and it leaves open the possibility of something else to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's what I always look for in the production of a work. And, and I think that I think Brecht also <coughs> was very interested in this idea of attempts because. If I'm not mistaken, he would publish things and then rewrite them and yeah. um, in different forms and add to them. And he never really always thought about things have been, ever being finished. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And I think that's a lovely way to think about the production of art and literature. Tremendous. I agree entirely. Thank you so much. Well, something else is going to happen now because I'm going to ask Nick from Libris, just to set the scene for us a little bit, just very briefly, about the English, this crucial English publication, which, of course, led to Adam and Oliver's work, among many other things. But um... I will try and do that. But before I do, I'd like to um, say something about what Tom said, or rather didn't say, I think. He mentioned the different registers of the poems. But um, what is, was striking to me was that at least 20 of them are written either to or in the voices of German soldiers in the East, mainly. And that is striking because Brecht's son, Frank Banholzer, the child of his favourite woman, and Helene Weigel said that, um, was um, a German soldier. He flew over England, actually, and was killed um, in a, <coughs> by a Soviet plane in a cinema on the Eastern Front. Now, Brecht um, was very fond of this child, and if you read the wonderful diaries, the 20s diaries, there are lots of references, and there are references later in letters. And although I'm not suggesting that Brecht wrote uh, any of these um, with his son particularly in mind, we, we don't know, of course, but I think that it is a dimension of war primer which is important. Okay. Um, you can come back on that, of course. Now, as to the origins, yes, I can do it, I think, very simply. I was a national serviceman in 1958 in Berlin, and uh, some someone said to me, um, books are very cheap in, in East Berlin, and so are records. And so I went, and I couldn't read German, but I, I picked up War Primer in a bookshop and looked at the pictures and bought it. And um, I didn't learn German then for another 10 years, basically, effectively. Um, and then I read it and was struck by it, uh, but didn't do anything with it. Um, went into publishing in various publishing companies. Um, and then I got to know John Willett um, after I'd 
begun Libris because he introduced me to Hans Fallada, as a matter of fact, um, which introduced the world again to Hans Fallada indirectly. <laughs> uh, and um, John um, told me, oh, I'm reading some Brecht poems at the poetry, what's it called, at the top of the festival hall. The poetry library. Poetry library, exactly, yeah. And so I went, and um, he projected, no, he didn't project, um, but I took with me my copy of Kriegsfeeble, um, and John, um, to my delight, read <coughs> some Kriegsfeeble in English, um, and he read number 18, or rather he didn't read it. This incredibly dry man um, was overcome with emotion halfway through and very cleverly just simply went on to the next. And that was really the conception of this edition, the Libris edition. I decided that I must ask John if he would do it and edit it. And he did. He was absolutely delighted. And he reorganized it, I think, very well. I think the English organization is better than the German. Um, and uh, that is the story. Um, it's as simple as that. Well, it's tremendous. Thank you so much. Nick. It shows that none of this is a given, right? I mean, individuals meeting each other, synchronicities, assignments. Um, books appear, and of course, once they appear, they feel inevitable, but they're far from it. Thank you so much um, for, for sharing that and for making it possible at all. Um, no, it's tremendous you're here. We've got time just for a couple of really key questions. No pressure. Questions that get to the heart of the 20th century, the electrifying <laughs> German culture of the uh, first half of the century and beyond. Um, any thoughts? I'm joking, of course. Any questions you do have? How many copies did you make of Two? I think we bought all the ones you had. Right. I think it was about 100. It was 100. Yeah, I think we... Yeah, I think we... Yeah, that was... That was all we could get at the time, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Could you use the mic if you don't mind? I have a paradox in my head, which is that that is, it's, I think, um, only Brecht who has left us with image as cliche if you're a director. You have... They can't appear at the back. I'm not being loud enough, or...? No, 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 it's just not close enough for your back. There. Okay, right. Um, you have the Singapore um, silent scream of Helena Weigel. You have the Arturo Ui speech of Eckhart Schall. And boy, oh boy, God help the next director who's got to somehow hit that pitch without... And, of course, it's a, it's a sort of director's quote-unquote trick that you do your scrapbook. Um, but as with notes for a production, you then somehow have to let them all go. But I'm, I'm really not giving it as a recommendation. I'm just saying I can't get out of my head that once you know the scream and once you know Hitler's Eckhart Schall, Arturo Ui, there is a very curious dilemma there, and as far as I know, only Brecht left it. And it is over-familiarity of an image. In production. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you. 
I mean, a question in a way, or responses from any or all of you, if you like, about how an image escapes that over overstatement, perhaps. Is it over familiarity, or is it is it the strength of the image? Yes, Melanie wants to say something. So <laughs> we've said enough. Isn't that just the whole purpose of the Kriegs feeble? Is that Brecht's poems are attacking the over-familiarity of certain ways of thinking about images. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's saying, think again. Don't presume that you know what the war was about. So it takes you to Singapore and Algiers and makes all these connections. So I was the question I wanted to ask, because I mean, I think that's what the Kriegsfeebel does. Brecht's Kriegsfeebel makes you rethink received ideas and images, you, what you think you know about the war, it challenges that. Yeah. That's the purpose of it. It's confrontational. It's disturbing. It, it sort of poses questions. It makes you uncomfortable. And you think, hang on a minute, what's going on here? So I wanted to ask you, how do you do that with the second round? How do you challenge... Because you, you're using the word, the phrase, war on terror, and you're saying 9-11, rather than perhaps the attack on the World Trade Center... How does your work make us rethink the received ideas about current everyday massacres? Um, I think that I think that what we were concerned with in War Primer Two was the role of photography in war, and that's something that's it's a, it's a theme that we've explored for many years. And so, in a way, we were kind of hijacking, in a way, this book. Um, and it's kind of, um, it's, it's a, um, what's the word, when you honor something, um, but at the same time you kind of graffiti all over it. Uh, you know, it was, um, it was a vandalism of the book, and we've hijacked it, and the purpose of that was to make it about photography, actually, and less about that particular war, even about the war on terror or the Second World War, but really about photography in these places, of, in these sites of suffering. And, and what it means to put a camera there, and, and, and what, is the, what is the duty of the camera, and, and, and what is our role as the, as the looker, as the receiver of these images. So I think where Brecht was concerned with the First World War, our concern was really the way that the technology of photography has changed since then. Um, and now we have drones flying hundreds of thousands of miles away by pilots sitting in Vegas, dropping bombs on people that are just, you know, numbers. I mean, the imaging of war, and this is, I think, I think my final point that I'd really like to make is that the war on terror was a war of images. And when the, the, when the World Trade Center was attacked, it was seen as an image wound against America. And what followed was an attack on Iraq and Afghanistan. But these were attacks on people and places, but they were also an attempt to find an image some kind of image that could fix the other image, that could replace that image in our mind. So it's a war of images. And the war primer says that so eloquently. It says, this is not just about people and deaths and things. This is a war of images, and these images are dangerous. And if we don't analyze them and we don't read them, we don't try to understand how they function, they can be very manipulative. In some ways, I mean, it could be... Part, part of learning to read an image is, is to work against image fatigue or, yes. you know, to force you to, to reconfront that which you think you know. I mean, I think 
as you were saying, really, and 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 that the work then of of the poems is to to pose really difficult questions that aren't immediately legible at all on the surface of the image. So you, you do bounce back off it in order to ask, what can't I see? Even in this thing so familiar to me, what can I still not see within it? I guess. Thank you very much. We're just going to take probably the last question just at the back. Yeah, thank you. Could we get the microphone just a bit? Yeah. <coughs> Um, all the way through the discussion throughout the evening, I've kept thinking of uh, Pasolini and his uh, La Rabia, his extraordinary film poem, which to me is, although they were very different people, uh, nonetheless is entirely evoking what Brecht was grappling with, maybe in a slightly different way, but and to your wonderful point about you know, no work about being unending. Well, you know, Pasolini is one other development on from that. For me, maybe I'm completely wrong. Incidentally, La Rabia has been even more difficult to bring into English and hasn't come into English yet. Sorry. Thank, so we just, do you have, yep? Very quick. But absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I just want to ask a question, I, I, just because it seems it's coming up again and again, just um, just the idea of the po- the text and the image. I think in the period in which War Primer was made, I think there were lots of attempts. Even I think Life magazine often made all, you know the some good attempts at matching a, ca- a caption and trying to make it poignant. And I even think of Steichen's Family of Man, which I believe kind of recaptioned previously known images with kind of some silly and maybe attempts at poetic um, engagement. But I think that's sort of what I want to ask is, how much power comes from not captioning or adding poetry, but I would call it more like recaptioning, that there is actually a displaced caption with because these images had had done some work somewhere or had been somewhere. And I think... How much is that adding to, uh, I don't know, is that, how much is that at play? Just like with montage, that we know these images have been pulled from the stream of newspapers and magazines and kind of reconfigured, and that kind of is, is there, that, that kind of displaced captioner's displaced use. And I'm just wondering if that's something there as well. Uh, Again, you, Esther mentioned taking them out of the stream and out of time. How how can we get it closer that that images can appear the first time engaged with this kind of poetry, or would that not work as well as sort of a re, revisiting the image with a new <clears throat> text? Anyways, I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think the point is, as as Esther said, that that this is also a critique of image making. Is, is that really so that um, we don't have... Brecht took photographs of his own. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't travel around the world taking photographs of the war. Um, and he didn't use them in that sort of way. The whole point is that these are, these are found photographs, yes, exactly, rested from their context and put in a new context. 
not only put in a new context by the, the caption, but by the, the work of being juxtaposed with other photographs. So there's an unexpected progression. You, you don't move simply, I don't know, from the most Im- obvious image of one conflict to the most obvious image of the next. Quite the reverse. I mean, perhaps we haven't placed enough stress on that. But there, there's also a photograph of, of a rocky shore and some waves. And the poem is about the bodies that lie at the bottom of the sea because they were torpedoed there. But it could be anywhere. Um, there's also a photograph of a sexy carrot um, sent in um, by a reader of a, a magazine in the States. You know, a carrot that's divided into two and has hips and things. Um, so, 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 so the resting from one context to put it into another is absolutely an essential part of the, 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 the project, I, I think. How one could do it with original images, I, I don't know, because that's not what this is doing. That's just mm. not the point at all. They are found images. I find it interesting that he sometimes you know, holds on to the original caption. So there's yeah. this sort of dialogue, and it kind of remind, it, it reminds me of Karl Kraus sort of in an earlier period, so kind of satirizing <coughs> and annotating newspaper um, columns, I suppose. But but uh, but also, I, I think interesting analogs to his dramatic practice there too, because it's almost like a chorus, right. um, you yeah. know, com- this mm. sort of commentating function on what is. And so that sense in which something has been displaced, I think, is is sort of is crucial to it that when you. When you cut something out, you implicitly bring something of of where it was with it that's in, important in the, the reading. I was just thinking of that displaced caption. I think that is it. For me, the author of floating around and kind of bare talking that this has some other bit of information attached to it. It's been displaced. And I feel like that. The idea of the displaced caption, the floating caption on the image, still still in play in a kind of constellation. There's there's something very deliberate. I I almost think it's only a page-by-page commentary that does justice to these practices because there's something very deliberate about the way the Brestier sometimes cuts off the captions. We have no idea what we're looking at and sometimes leaves them there. Um, sometimes there's quite a lot of text. There's one um, cutting which is actually just of text and, and has no, no image. Um, a text in a, in a foreign language as well, text in Danish. I think it is Danish. But it's interesting with the example you gave of the photograph of the ocean and then the poem yeah. about these um, sunken sailors. I think what Brecht is doing there and what happens again and again in this book is he's speaking about what's happening outside the frame. And so he's showing you a photograph, but he's actually speaking of, he's, he's asking you to think, well, what's going on beyond what you can see in this image? Um, and, that's, and that's the work he's doing, I think, um, to think beyond the frame of the photograph. Thank you very much, Oliver. Oliver, of course, commented that some of the greatest works of art are unfinished. Sadly, this event has to come to a formal close (laughs) now. But, of course, it it keeps on giving informally over perhaps another glass of wine and and major acquisition at the front of the room here. Um, But just to remind us all that we've we've been dealing with what is, you know, in pagination terms, a very slim volume, huge in ideas and scope, as this event has shown. Um, 
there are many great events here at the LRB. This one sets the bar that much higher now. The other ones can just walk straight under it <laughs> on their way to the drinks, um, <laughs> which we can do shortly ourselves as well. But just to tell you, of course, that, as I said, it continues here at the LRB. Conflict, given the world we find ourselves in, also continues to be a point of discussion on Thursday. El Salvador, uh, inevitably conflict, will be part of that. Very interesting conversation to come on Friday, the Soviet Union. And other forms of challenge, of course, around capital, with Anna Minton and Lindsay Hanley, among others, coming in into July. So do please keep in touch with the LRB in all its manifestations online, of course, in print and live, as always. Wonderful thanks to our panel. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what they're up to. Uh, Esther's new book, uh, Liquid Crystals, you can find with reaction books and her many other books, of course, some of which are on sale here. Tom continues to bring Brecht into the world. Love Poems, translated with David Constantinus here, and also books on Brecht's theatre. Um, and Adam and Oliver will be exhibiting widely across the continent, in fact, uh, in, uh, across the autumn, um, with The Image of War, uh, a show in Dresden, and also a show about Brecht and Benjamin uh, in Berlin, both in the autumb and on the underground here in um, our benighted capital, um, uh, Art on the Underground, uh, September and October as well. So you can find details, of course, on the relevant websites um, and uh, in all the usual outlets, uh, wanting to be, of course, as impartial as ever, um, given the world we uh, find ourselves in. Um, many thanks to you for coming. Many thanks to Nick Jacobs from Libraries for reminding us how um, these books um, are not a given, as I said earlier, and how we are dependent on the ideas coming into form in the first place, and then publishers, agents, artists, galleries, and all the machinery to keep them live and visible. But please do now thank, uh, alongside Bertolt Brecht and his Warpimer, our wonderful panel for making it possible tonight to think about it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.